It's not always the big things that change the world. It's the small acts of kindness that happen repeatedly over a lifetime that make the world a better place. So every week we share a story of someone like you who is doing good in the world in their own way. Welcome to Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert, and today on the podcast, I have an incredible guest, Lily de, is it, now tell me, is it Hoyos? Yeah, de Hoyos. Lily de Hoyos? De Hoyos. De Hoyos. In English, we just say de Hoyos, so whatever. Lily de Hoyos Anderson is a first-generation American. Her mother's French and her father is Mexican. She grew up in Indiana, but when she started high school, both of her parents began teaching at BYU, so the family moved to Provo, and she graduated from Provo High School. Lily graduated from BYU in sociology. She married Chris Anderson, and they had eight children in 12 years. Holy Hannah. <laughs> that is so it's fun. <laughs> so fun and awesome. And they are affectionately referred to as the Alphabet Kids because their names are Adam, Bethany, Caitlin, Dominic, Eden, Faith, Graydon, and Harper. That's so fun. That's like, have you ever seen Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Of course. Of course. Of course. Oh, Adam, Bethany, Caitlin, Frank, Yep. I know. It was not intentional. That's the that's the weird thing. Back then, we didn't know if we were having boys or girls. So you'd choose both names and go to the hospital and then use the right one, right? So No, it ended up being in alphabetical order. Well, not accidentally eight times, but the yes. first three. The first three. Adam would have been Bethany. Bethany would have been Jacob. Caitlin would have been Saul. So we weren't thinking alphabetically, but a friend, as soon as Caitlin was born, called me and said, you realize you have an ABC? And I was like, oh my goodness, because we hadn't been thinking that way. So it was very hard not to think. Yes, we, we probably wouldn't have gone with it if we hadn't had a, a D name that we liked for a boy because a girl, we wouldn't have had a name. Anyway. After that, we were stuck. We didn't want the rest of the kids to feel yes. disenfranchised. Uh, exactly. I love that so much. We we plan on naming all the boys B names after my husband, Brad, and the girls C names after myself, Carmen. And then after our first three boys, Boston, Beckham, Briggs, we're like, okay, well, now we're just going to stick with the Bs for, <laughs> for Benson. Yeah, and they'll just all be the Bs and they're the killer Bs. And it's so fun that we have, it's like a family identity. That it, got, is. So. It, was, it was a fun thing. When we got to number eight, honestly, I, I told my husband, this is the truth. I said, can we, can we name this one Hallelujah. Oh. I thought it would be okay. We could call him Hall if he's a boy. Or Holly. Call, call it Holly or Hallie if she's a girl. That's and my true. husband talked me out of it. Right. As it is, he said, no, let's not give a reason to resent us right off the bat. But Harper's so sweet. Well, we named him Harper and, we, and he's amazing and he's a good Harper. But uh, every time I look at him, I sometimes still think, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. I love it. Yeah, well, and now you're collecting grandchildren. You have number 37, right? And this is what six married children. So we still have two single kids. And we have this we are third family with eight. Oh my goodness. So our oh. run is over. <gasps> I bet those family get togethers are super fun. The holiday they're, family get togethers. They're wonderful. I, I will say this, you know, we didn't expect our children to have a lot of kids. I mean, that's not anybody's business, right? So yeah, right. It was certainly not something that, you know, was a part of the family expectation, nevertheless, and probably because my parents were sociologists and we talked about these things at the dinner table, but I, I kind of did my own survey when I was starting to have children pretty quickly. And I, I thought, I don't know, I really believe it was the spirit that kind of prompted me to start talking to the older children of big families that were in our neighborhoods or wards. And we were actually in Oklahoma and Chicago during this time, but there were some large families in our wards. And I went and I asked, you know, what was the best thing about being in a big family? Because I only had two sisters and my husband had one. We didn't really know oh, how oh. about big families. So it was a surprise. I mean, I thought I had three or four kids. I was healthy and we just, it was, it was just good. And anyway, so I started asking these kids, what was the best thing about being in a big family? What was the hardest thing about being in a family? And I would talk with them about that. And then the punchline question was always, how many children do you want? And sadly, the answer every time was either one or none. And even though they had said good things about their families, they felt a little burned out because oh. you know, I don't know how many children they ended up having. And hopefully that burnout didn't last forever. But yep. these kids were in high school at the time I was talking to them. So they yep. were thinking about things like this. And 
And that made me so sad. And I thought, okay, well, it's obvious that that can happen when there's a big family and a lot of responsibility falls on the older children. Yeah. And while, of course, our older children were tremendous, helped us in amazing ways. Yeah. Especially a daughter who was the oldest when I was in my master's program. I'm so indebted to Bethany and her siblings just love her forever because she was so helpful during that time. Nevertheless, um, I didn't want them to not have the opportunity to have big families. So I was very proactive from that time about not putting too much weight on the older children. Again, they helped tremendously. Yes. But it, I, I was very conscious of that. And it has been an enormous blessing to me that I did not burn out my children on having children. So this is, this is the completion of a huge blessing for me to have my children who have been able and willing and healthy enough, of course, because there are many variables involved. But right. to have big families, I, it makes my heart just glow. Oh, well, and how sweet that you are able to see their joy in having lots of children because it isn't, I think across the board, whether or not you come from a big family, it's not as popular to have a lot of children these days. It's it, And it's difficult. And I think there's maybe some fear we have with the current situation of our world, how it is right now, and there's concern. And so a lot of people are choosing not to for various reasons, but what a blessing to to be able to see, look how much they can bless your life. Look how joyful it is to have children. And, and what a good thing it is for the world. And what There's a good children thing. that come into the world. And, that is, and what a good thing. the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, exactly. And, and, and to be able to spread that goodness and light through your children and, and to have just more voices for good and, and for light in the world. And I think it is hard speaking of that, my little guys right here right now. Speaking of that, it, it, it is hard when you have children that feel like they've already raised their siblings and then to feel like now we have to raise our children. That would be hard, but but in teaching responsibility, but not feeling like it's your responsibility to mm-hmm. raise these children while, you and know what sure, I mean? That's right. And make sure they have access to their parents too, that they're not always yes. pushed aside because I'm too busy or I have to deal with this. But, and, and of course, there's, it's busy. It's busy. And there's a, a lot of, you know, souls in there needing help, but trying to make sure that they each had access was a big thing too. And that nobody yes. out from parents because parents were tending little kids. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, I would love, I would love to continue um, introducing how amazing you are besides being an incredible mother to these beautiful kids who are doing so much good. You, like you said, you returned to school to complete your master's in social work at UNLV and then a PhD in marriage, family, and human development from BYU, where you taught for several, several years at the School of Family Life. You're a licensed clinical social worker and have a private practice in individual marriage and family counseling. You love reading and sewing and music and quilting and photography and making stained glass windows. How cool is that? And sewing quilts for your your grandchildren and for quilts of valor. And that is so awesome. You've written several books. Your first book, Family Foundations, was written in response to student requests when you were teaching at BYU. And then the second book, Choosing Glory, is available right now in paper book and on Kindle. For 25 years, presented at professional conferences and to church groups, including BYU I Devotionals as a keynote speaker and as a keynote speaker for the New Zealand YSA conference. So, and of course, you have a podcast also called Choosing Glory and have had the privilege of serving on two committees for the um, church public affairs, one of which was tasked with the second version of the mormonandgay.org website, which ooh, I would love to talk to you about too, what about that as well and, and what an opportunity that was and how that's maybe changed your perspective or your thoughts on um, inclusion in the LDS church. I don't know that it changed my thoughts a lot, to be honest. I, I think those there were four therapists that were invited to be on that committee to create content. And I think it was a, an incredible blessing that the four of us were all really loyal to the to the doctrines of the church. You know, the compassion of a counselor is always, you know, so important. You yeah. can't really do counseling if you don't love people. Yeah. You know, to, to make sure that, you know, that that came through is always incredibly important. And and we do, you know, I mean, we have a sign on all our chapels that the things are welcome, so do we not? 
welcome our own, you know, and as we always say, right at the hospital, it's not, it's not a museum. And I love, I love that analogy so, so much. Um, it is to, you know, we do want to include everybody that said, you know, Zion is one heart and one mind. So it's not, it's not a, you know, we begin with all the different kinds of fish that it says in the Old Testament are gathered in the net, right? And we yes. come from everywhere and all kinds of differences are are part of our of our community. And yet the goal is to become one. And we don't want to lose sight of that either. That that we don't change God's plan for us because his plan is perfect and he knows right. where happiness and a fullness of joy come. But it is important that we not be afraid of differences. And sometimes we've been accused in the church of, of being great at fellowshipping people who are exactly like us. And that's, that's unfortunate, right? Because we need to do better. We need to, another colleague years ago that uh, when I was working as in a nonprofit for Latter-day Saint counselors, when I was chatting with him, made a really sad and insightful statement when he said, sometimes the church can become an army that shoots its own wounded. And that's a tragic thought. It's a tragic thought. I'm afraid sometimes that does happen. People feel excluded or unwelcome. And that's never, it's never okay. When I, as a counselor, hear a story about somebody who has been feeling left out or even sort of avoided or shunned or ignored by their ward or stake, I, I always sort of ask, you know, is there a Christian in the house? <laughs> is, is there a Christian? Right. Because are we, are we not Christian? Are we not? looking to include and embrace and love and fellowship because that's essential in the kingdom of God. If um, there was a great statement by Marvin J. Ashton made in an April conference in 1992. And I know this because I quote it often. He said, the best indication that we are progressing spiritually and coming to Christ is the way we treat other people. Yes. That, that's kind of a statement. You know, I mean, I remember when we heard that and we didn't have DVRs back then, so I couldn't like, or back, back it up and sit and pray it over and over. But I asked my kid, did you hear that? Did, did you hear what he said? Because I'm pretty sure that that's exactly right. And yes. that doesn't mean there aren't other parts of the gospel because God does have his covenants that he expects us to make and keep if we want to be his. But it's really the fruit of it comes out in love. If we're doing the right things, the fruit is love and we treat other people the way he would. And that's that's a goal. How do you think we can show that love to others in a way that is genuine while still, like you said, staying true to the doctrines and what we believe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I know some people think it's impossible to do both because the church is saying one thing, but then Jesus Christ, you know, some people have tried to separate Christ from his church. And it is his church. And I believe that with my whole heart. It is the church of Jesus Christ. So we believe in a living prophet. We believe in the revelations that we've been given. And we believe in on the ongoing restoration of the gospel. And there's further light and knowledge. But how can we show that love for others in a way that is true and that in a way that is not hypocritical. Do you have any insight into that? Because this is something I am, I want to do better at. Well, I, you know, I do have a lot of thoughts on that. And many of them come from prophets, right? There's a great speech by Elder Oaks called, now President Oaks, called Love and Law. It's a tremendous treatment. Anybody who's interested in this topic, you know, would really, really, I think, benefit from reading that speech and pondering it and reading it again and pondering it again. I think that, you know, it is interesting that people want to separate Christ from his church because it's his church, as you said, and all of it comes from him. So I think that we've we've kind of followed into a little bit more of this secular pattern or, you know, as we've said, the philosophies of men mingled with scripture to think that that Christ doesn't have standards, that he that he because he loves everybody, which he does, that he doesn't care what they do and they all can go to the kingdom anyway. That's not the case. It, it doesn't mean he doesn't love. And I think that a big part of our, of our struggle there is because we don't really understand God. Joseph Smith talked about how this is fundamental to faith. And in the lectures on faith, he says that this is essential, a, a prerequisite that we need to know the character of God and how he loves, which is a perfect love. And 
and recognizing, I mean, that is so much nicer than we give him credit for. Do we realize, do we realize in the plan that nobody remains in hell? I mean, even the most rebellious, I mean, Mao Zedong, you know, Stalin, Hitler, you know, Jack the Rip. Anyway, the most rebellious, the most evil people who took pleasure in inflicting pain and in other people will go to hell if they didn't repent before they died. And then because of God's merciful plan and the atonement of Jesus Christ, they will be redeemed from hell after they have balanced the scales of justice themselves because they wouldn't access the atonement through repentance. But then they will be redeemed from hell. Nobody is left in hell. Not, no matter how wicked or how evil or how intentionally cruel, everybody is redeemed from hell because of the love of God and the mercy of the atonement. And then they get a body that will never get old or sick or hurt again. And it will have a measure of glory, at least celestial glory, which we have famously heard is much better even than this world. So it's like, that, that's for the worst of us, the very worst of us. So what are we really worried about? What, why, why are we so worried? Do we think that I, that, and this is the sad thing to me. It's such an irony. I think like, do I think that I am having more compassion than God for like gay people or for, you know, somebody who's sinning or somebody who's left the church? Do I think I'm nicer than God? Because it's kind of what I'm saying. If I think that like, well, the church isn't, hasn't got a plan for this or our doctrines don't include these people. You're like, really? And remember when Christ said this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is for, for our day as much as any other time, maybe even more, where he said, which of you, if your child asks of you a fish, will give him, or what is it, a, a meat will, or bread, will give him a stone, or a fish will give him a serpent? He said, if you being evil, now when he says evil in this context, he means human. Carnal human, yes. You're, you're just imperfect creatures. And if you know how to give good gifts, how much more do you think God knows how to give good gifts to his children? And again, it's kind of like, do we, do we even trust that God is like as nice as, as us, <laughs> let alone nicer or kinder or more charitable, where his plan includes everybody? It includes everybody and it saves everybody with, as we know, the very small exception of the sons of perdition who, with their eyes wide open, reject it. So you can't really feel sorry for somebody who knows exactly what they're rejecting and they reject it anyway. And that's a very tiny group. Everybody else is saved. Not everybody else is exalted, but everybody else is saved. You can have as much glory as you want. And we're in a plan where we actually get to choose the outcome. And how often does that happen? Where you really get what you want when it comes to eternity. But we all get more than we deserve because of the mercy of the plan and the atonement of Christ. We all get that giant boost so that we get more than we, even than we choose or deserve. It's, it's an amazingly kind plan. And can we trust him? And a lot of it really is just trying to understand that we can trust our Father in heaven to be much nicer than we are. And nice isn't even the right word, kinder. It's true kindness and love and charity and the gifts are all good. Everyone gets a full chance and whether it's here or in the spirit world to come, gets a complete opportunity with their eyes wide open, with our eyes wide open, to know what the choice is and to express the honest desires of our heart. And then they will be fulfilled. So. You know, if we're blinded by things, if there are things that are in the way, and not to make too many excuses, to be honest, because this life is a time of probation, but we know that God will take all things appropriately into consideration in a way that none of the rest of us can. And it will be not only fair, but merciful. And that's amazing. At the end of this all, we're going to be all just kind of sitting there going like, wow, how did he do this? <laughs> because this worked out a lot better than I thought. Totally. And I think that is the key. What you just said is trusting that he knows more than we do. And I'm so glad you shared that beautiful scripture oh, about if, and I'm a mother, I, I have four kids, you have eight children. And, and I say this to my children sometimes, like if you only knew how much I loved you, if you only knew... And then think of your heavenly father who loves you infant. I mean, I would do anything for you. I would die for you. So would Jesus Christ. And he did. And how much more does he know you and love you and know what's best for you than even I do? And, and that I think that is honestly, Lily Key, what you said is that if we can just 
and it's hard. It's not, it's a simple, it's a simple thing. Trust God. It's practice. It's kindness. It's simple. Stretching our faith. But it's not easy. The whole enchilada is to keep stretching that faith and believe what we cannot see. And then we start to see it. Yes. (laughs) Because God is so kind. But if we move forward in faith, and as I think Mary G. Romney told Boyd K. Packer once, you know, take that faith even to the edge of the light and a few steps into the darkness. Yes. God opens up the light. And, And in gradual ways, sometimes like Bednar said, or sometimes in a moment of epiphany. But we will learn if we will move forward in faith. But it does require faith. It does. Sit back and say like, well, prove to me that you're a good guy. You know, that's not no. really a good approach. No. It's not going to open up the no. light. Yes. And I, I think that I'm going to remember that. I That just touched me so much. What you remember, God is kind. And when you don't understand a doctrine or you don't understand a a, you know, a guideline or a standard or an opinion even from someone, remember God is kind. He is kind and he will work things out, like you said, better than we can imagine and for our good. He doesn't want us to be unhappy, but he does want us to learn and grow and trust him and have faith. And like you said, there are standards, there are covenants we make, and we get to choose whether or not we make them. Like you said, we get to decide. And if we do, Get what we want. We, it, we will get what we want. Mm. We will get what we want. I amazing plan. I mean, I'm, I'm off filled, you know, and I and I've just as I continue to grow and and learn myself, I, I just my awe and wonder and gratitude for God and Christ just just is magnified. I'm so I'm so grateful for them. I trust them implicitly. I mean, there's something I don't understand. It like what. I guess we'll figure this out as we go because I'm not going to question it because I know they are good. I know they are the best. I when I went to Nashville in a former life, it seems like in in 2003, so or 2004. So I mean, it's been yeah, 17 years, 18 years. Um, after American Idol, and I had an opportunity to write some incredible songs with some incredible songwriters. It was a wonderful experience. And one of the songwriters, her name was Victoria Shaw. And she sent this song to me. I never recorded it, but the lyrics have always stuck with me. And it goes, I guess the one who made the sunsets and the seasons had a real good reason. It's about getting your heart broken for the pain of love. And though I hate to bite the hand of the one who made me, If he gave me one little clue as to why I lost you, maybe I'd be able to move on. But then it said, if God and me sat down for tea, I'd serve dessert and ask why it hurts when someone said goodbye. And then it says, but if God and me can agree to disagree, then I I would understand that he knows more than me or something like that. So it's like you ask him, why? Why did you get my heart broken? Why did this happen? And then it's like, oh, well, I guess the person that created all knows a little bit more so yeah, maybe just a little maybe just a little so if we can agree to give her a little attitude on this a little bit and it was it's such a simple thing and some of the you know the doctrines whatever like we shouldn't disagree but sometimes we think i don't understand why you're doing this i don't understand why this trial's in my life but if we can say okay but i trust you then then he knows more than me and and i've i loved that line so much and i and i'll sing it to myself sometimes like okay then let's just say, okay, I, I'm, I'm just going to trust you and trust that your outcome will be better than the one I would have planned for myself. And that's the stretching of our faith, which is, and I remember early in our marriage, I was, you know, trials would come and it would be the same kind of thing. Why is this happening? Whatever. And, and then I would remember talking to my husband and say, oh, this, this is about faith, isn't it? Like, I really need to just stretch my faith. And it seems like that happened a few times within a relatively short period that I was coming up with this, it's, this is about faith line. And then I said, wait a minute, that's like the first principle. Is it that I can't get off the first square of the monopoly board? And right. my husband really wisely said, Louie, faith is the first principle, but it's also the last because by faith, the worlds were created. What, that was such a brilliant, brilliant reminder to me because I'm like, that's right. So the whole point of life in some respects, I mean, of course, there are a lot of covenants and whatever, but the whole one of the big arcs of our lives is to develop the kind of faith that can create worlds, that can move mountains if necessary, or that makes the lions roar in the wilderness like Enoch. So like, what do we think that life was going to be clear and, you know, so obvious in, in its meaning or that we were going to see through a glass darkly, like Paul says, 
that we were going to have to pierce that veil through faith again and again. And remember, it's not death that pierces the veil, it's faith. So, so it, this is about stretching our faith. And that's a beautiful example of, of, that, of that song saying like, okay, in this little area, maybe I can stretch my faith this much. And you know, it doesn't work to disagree with God. I'm just saying it just doesn't work yeah. because he's always right. And he's always right. He tells us this is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, right? Where he says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. I mean, he's really gentle, but he's saying, when we disagree, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> I'm just going it. And let's see if we can save a little time. Yes. And there's another beautiful place in Abraham 3 where God is talking about intelligence and says, you know, when there are these two facts, do this, when there's one, and, you know, two spirits, one will be more intelligent. And if there's a third, that one will be more intelligent because we receive light at different rates. And then he said, I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. And I think, you know, how sad is this? He has to put it in print. Yes. <laughs> and try to remind us again, quite gently, when you think about it, I know everything. I know everything. Don't, smarter don't than you. your head against brick walls. No. Thinking that you have a better way than God. No, no. That's a kind of pride that, you know, and President Benson reminded us that that's the universal sin. So we all have to work on it. Yes. But but that's a kind of pride that the sooner we can jettison, the better. For sure. That's in the way of our building faith. Yes. And trials are for a very specific reason. Part of it is to build faith and the other part is to build spiritual muscle. And how did we think that was going to happen on some kind of desert cruise somewhere? Like, or no. Yep. It's got to be in the spiritual weight room of life. It does. Ooh, I love that. The spiritual weight room of life. Hard. And difficult, yet so rewarding, stronger, better after. And it, it reminds me of the scripture when you were saying about knowing more than God is that when men are learned, they think they are wise. And, and you have a PhD. So I would say you are very learned. I mean, you are, you have, well, are, are I, I studied a lot. <laughs> You've studied a lot. So, so Lily, what is something that you have learned in your studies on what has humbled you in, in learning more and how, how do you think we can stay wise to the things of the gospel and not, and not start to think, well, I'm now wiser than they all and kind of lean more to the world's way of being wise. And, and how do you stay humble to still learning the things of God and to not thinking, well, I kind of know it all. Now, not that you ever would, but sometimes that's a tendency. Like, well, I have friends that come to me and they're like, I have studied all this anti-Mormon literature and all these things. And if you only knew, like if you only just studied, if you only, and then I think Open about, yes, and if you, and then I think about President Nelson and how incredibly learned and wise he is and mm -hmm. a, a medical doctor. And I think, do I know more than him? These men are not, you know, slouches. No. <laughs> They've been around the block. No. And they, have, they have brilliance, you know. They, they have brilliance, and yet they are humble and still mm -hmm. teachable. So what is a way that you have, have stayed that way, humble and teachable? Okay, um, one, of my, one of my faults is that I don't give short answers. <laughs> so, I love it. That's the point of the podcast. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. I, I do. Um, my parents were amazing people. Amazing people. In some respects, you could say they were planted in the poorest part of the vineyard. My father grew up in Mexico where there was no organized church. Their family had joined, but his father died when he was seven. They were very poor. They, they lost the ranch and the businesses. My mother grew up in France, not believing blood heritage. In fact, my grandmother, my French grandmother's parents didn't, they were not even Catholic in a very Catholic country. And they didn't even own a Bible when everybody had a Bible. And my oh. a friend gave my grandmother the Bible and she read it and had a feeling that she had known it before. But she was different from her family. And then she, because there were arranged marriages still back then, married a kind of a bum. And then her second marriage was to a divorced guy. And or no, to a widower, sorry. And she uh, was a widow and he wasn't nice. And he did join the church, but, you know, he was a bum and, and abusive. So they, they were difficult lives, you know, difficult lives. My, my mother's family joined when she was six, so she was baptized at eight. But there was, you know, there were maybe six people in the branch, you know. I mean, maybe, actually, it was probably five and then two missionaries. 
So Heber J. Grant came to Paris and said, come to Zion, because back then they were still gathering to Utah. So it took them about eight years and they couldn't get visas to the United States right away. My grandfather was a Hitler sympathizer, so he would have caused serious destruction to the family if he'd collaborated, of course, with the Nazis. So my grandmother wanted to get them out of town and they couldn't get visas to the U.S., so they went to Argentina. So my mother's second language is Spanish. Um, Her third is English. They were learning English right away, but again, they ran away from my grandfather, who was abusive, and he wouldn't have let them go because they were doing all the work on the farm. So anyway, it was a harrowing experience to be, and then poor in Buenos Aires. She wasn't able to finish her secondary schooling because she had to go to work. And they didn't have skills, but they learned, and they learned how to type on a library book page, and they learned shorthand from books, and eventually my mother knew shorthand in three languages. Now, yes, I mean, these are amazing people. My father also had only four years of public education in which he completed six years, but that was it, elementary school. And then he went to work and he wasn't even as old as, you know, he was 10 when he went to work. Oh, so these are, you know, they had difficult lives. They never, they didn't complain. These, my, my parents were amazing people. And this is my legacy. I'm just, I'm just so incredibly grateful for these people who had the light and pursued it, even though they didn't have a lot of interaction with a formal church organization. It wasn't really until my dad, who was the sixth of eight children, you know, went to Mon- Monterey from Saltillo. And he said, you know, we need to come here. There's a ward, you know, their church is organized or whatever. And then eventually the family went to Monterey and they had a little more interaction with the church. And then uh, he went on a mission and served there in Mexico. And then his bishop president told him, you should go to BYU. And he was like, what's a BYU? I don't know what a BYU is. <laughs> anyway, when he got to BYU, he had meat for like two days. I mean, he barely had enough for the bus ticket, you know, and he stayed on the floor of some mission companions that were Anglos. You know, he stayed on their apartment floor until he could get a job and whatever. And he took the GED, not knowing English, and passed by one point because he, was, because he had read extensively and he was good at math and he was good at some things and he could guess enough that he passed by one point, even taking this in a foreign language. Oh my goodness. Um, my mother had learned English by the time she took the GED <laughs> and, she, and she was able to pass. So they, they met at BYU, the melting pot of the Mormon world. Now, my dad ended up doing three college degrees in his second language. My mother did three college degrees in her third. And these are, I mean, amazing people. <laughs> they are amazing. Yeah. And we had the most wonderful dinner table conversations because oh, we shared yeah. everything and we talked about the gospel but we talked about their professions and of course they were interested in people and why people behave the way they do and my mother's masters had been in social work also so she understood you know the counseling aspect and whatever anyway so i learned so much just sort of you know soaking up from my parents we yeah. took long trips from indiana to go visit my dad's brother's family in provo and my mom's sister's family in california so we went across the country and we talked and we read in the car and they were they were just amazing people i'm i'm so eternally grateful for all that i learned from them and how i learned to learn and yes. they were humble enough to, i mean and in here i mean i remember at the dinner table as a kid you know my parents talking about these principles or whatever of the gospel and how they blended with all that they were learning there, they would exclaim with kind of a rapture, God is a sociologist. <laughs> <laughs> and he is. And he's also a rocket scientist and a botanist and, a, you know, whatever. He's everything. He's everything. He has all the truth and all knowledge. He knows it all. Yes. And so there was that natural growth into that humility that as we discover truth, we are just starting to understand what God already knows and is sharing with us and all light and truth come from him john Fontius wrote this once in a good book called what is it following the light of christ into into his presence and i i love this line from this book where he he says people think they don't get revelation where do they think their good ideas come from i'm like well said (laughs) (laughs) really we're taking credit for our good ideas how foolish is that so i i've grown up understanding it all comes from God. And if we are willing recipients, he will share with us. And how do we receive? By being righteous. This is section 50 in the DNC, right? Where it says, he that receiveth light and continueth in God. And that's the punchline. We need to do what the light tells us to do, or we're going to lose it. And there are other places in the scripture that say that, you know, that we have less than we had at the beginning. If we don't follow in the light, if we don't continue in God, meaning be obedient to what we know. 
And anyway, in section 50, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. So it's this journey toward the light, which how exciting is that? Because light is light, truth, and intelligence. And yes. we get smarter as we get more like God. Anyway, one of the stories that my parents would tell, and my dad particularly was a great storyteller. Um, <laughs> and he was charismatic and he had that Spanish accent. Anyway, I mean, he was so fun to listen to. He could, he could bring the masses to tears, you know, <laughs> or, or the heights, you know. And then he would hand them over in the mission to my mother when they were mission presidents. And my mom would then really teach them deep doctrine because she yeah, was a survivor. So they were a terrific pair uh, as mission presidents for sure. But anyway, my dad would tell these great stories and he, you know, was so well read and kept and studied all his life. So one of his, you know, we talk of the stories of the Old Testament, the Book of Mormon, and things like that. But I remember when he talked about Solomon. And he knew he'd read extensively. So he knew more about even like the visits of other monarchs to see Solomon's glory and the glory of his court and the wisdom that he dispensed to his people. So he had a lot of extra details that aren't even in Genesis, but, or I mean, in the Old Testament, but he um, would talk about this great wisdom of Solomon. And I remember as a young person thinking, I would like to be wise. Like, how amazing is that? You know, the story of the twin, right? Or I mean, not the twin, but maybe I'll split it in half and give it each to my other. Yes. I mean, it's just so brilliant. You know, you're like, wow, that is, how did he do that? You know, that, that is, how did he do that? Right. Yeah. So, so wise that he knew that that would reveal the real mother. You know, anyway, happy ending there. But anyway, I, I, I'm thinking, gosh, I want to be wise. Like, I really would love to be wise. And then, and I didn't start reading the scriptures until I was like in high school and I decided to, to start reading with seminary when I was a junior. So the first book I read was the DNC because that's what we were studying. But then I went on and read the Book of Mormon. And there it was. It's right there in Alma. <laughs> it's right there when he started to say Coriantum. And what does he say? He says, you know, be wise. Yay. Or what is it? You know, in thy, can I say learn wisdom in thy youth. That's what it yeah. is. Oh, yeah. Um, yay. Learn to obey the commandments of God. And I remember when I read that and this kind of, you know, chill went through me and I'm like, is that it? I mean, is it that simple? Is, is that it? Yes, that is it. Harvard, that's it. Obey and become wise. That, that's wisdom. And so there's, there's a, a humility in that, of course, because I am acknowledging, as my parents always did, that God knows everything. And we're just, we're just fortunate enough that he's willing to share it. And if we obey, he'll share more. And then he'll share more. And he'll share more. And we'll become wise. And so, I, I mean, I was never a really rebellious spirit, but it just was, I was even all in at a higher level when I'm like, that's what I want. I want, I want to receive that wisdom. So I will, you know, and again, I had been rebellious before, but it was just this new affirmation, this new level of like, that's what I want. That's what I, yes. this is how to get it. I am not questioning the Lord. I am doing it his way. And I'm saving a lot of time for myself in the process. Yes. Instead of wasting a ton of time out there, you know, fussing about which way to do things, you know, because the, you know what, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Am I going to reinvent this plan that has been done a zillion times, a zillion times, and it's perfect? And, but I'm going to like, say, well, I have a suggestion, Lord. You know, I think we should change it. I think I think I could figure out a way to do this better. I, I mean, have a better idea. You know, like, right. yeah, no, like that's just, no. And, and you know, Moses one, we just read this for the Pearl Great Price study here this year. I mean, it, look what he says when he comes out of that, you know, transfiguration trance, you know, as he's, as he's recovering. Wow. For this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never before supposed. <laughs> like, yes. I had no idea. Like, right. how little we are next to him. Like, wow, new perspective on that, you know? Totally. Like, note to self. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's try to hold this thought. All right. Like, glory, you know? And no. And then, man. I can receive it because he wants to share it. But it's on his terms. And if I, I think I can negotiate those terms, I'm a fool. Yes. And, and, and what you said is, if we obey, if that's the, it, as simple as that is, and again, not easy, but simple, mm -hmm. if we obey. And you know what? It's easier than the alternative. That's the crazy part. It is. Because we think we're giving up all this, you know, freedom, we think, you know, to, to do it God's way. And then if ever, all true change that is motivated by truth and faith, you know, we get past the hump of it to change a habit or give up something or whatever, to change the way we're doing things, the way we think. 
and we do it, you get over that hump and you know what? You always look back. I tell you, this is counsel. You always look back and you say, why didn't I do that before? Yes. <laughs> this is so much better than the way I, I was doing it. And it seems contradictory that you would think I have to obey in order to be wiser or to make more decisions for myself. Like some people would think, yeah, but you're just blindly obeying and you just go along with what people say and you just don't even figure out anything for yourself. But what you said is the most important part when you obey the further light and knowledge and okay. wisdom comes. That's when it comes. It's not when you're out searching yourself and trying to find it yourself and contradict God and, and say, I know more. It's when you have the humble, simple faith to obey that he says, now I'm going to tell you all you want to know. I'm going to give you the answers. The I'm going to reveal to you. Yes. And doesn't that. And it may come down the road. I mean, we do. The Lord does want us to be patient. It and faithful. Yes. It's, it's his timing. But the yes. answers do come. And it will all come in the end. So again, it's kind of like, who am I going to trust? Myself or him? Or him. Who's and got a track record? Right. And, and, and I feel like it doesn't that take the pressure off to try and find what is the truth? What is the right thing? Doesn't it just take the pressure off to say, oh, it, it's me. I know it. And all you have to do is obey me and I will let you know. Anthony Sweat, who is a good friend of mine, posted on Instagram recently. And he said, Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. When people are like, what's the, what's the truth? And and well, this is my truth, which I hate that more than anything. What is my truth? What is your, oh, live your truth. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the truth is Jesus Christ. And I love that he personified truth as the Savior. Yeah. And that's that's the, where, where we need to go. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something else. I was gonna, oh, yes. My parents also have showed a great example of, as scholars of trusting the Lord and then doing this, the work. So when like the Equal Rights Amendment was out there, this is back in the early 70s, and people were trying to pass that as a constitutional amendment. And the church, in an unusual way, because they don't usually try to tell us how to vote, did encourage us to ask our legislators to vote against the Equal Rights Amendment. And there was a national campaign to stop the ERA. And church people were involved in that in every state. And I was actually one of those people who participated just as a participant, whether other leaders of the movement in Oklahoma, where my husband did graduate school, as well as in Chicago, where the last state defeated the Equal Rights Amendment. And it was very near to passage and Congress had even voted an extension. Anyway, too much information, but it was it's kind of a fascinating time. And my mother, who was a female professor at BYU, and there weren't that many at that time, especially not outside of like family studies and things like that, or like, you know, home ec type stuff. Yeah. But she was in sociology and a real scholar. And so many kind of sort of feminist members of the church would go to her and say like, oh, we need you to come and talk and tell us how you feel about all this and whatever. And, you know, she was hurt by the fact that BYU would not pay her a full-time salary until my youngest sister was out of high school, in spite of the fact that we had a French grandmother that lived with us. So we were never with babysitters. We were never in daycare. But they, she, so she still, you know, and part-time is like, you do it for love, not money. But oh, anyway, yes. she continued her scholarship and, and research and writing and taught at, with a full-time load. Oh my God. Um, along with my father, but it really hurt her when it came to retirement pensions and social security and stuff like that. So yeah. she, you know, she paid a price for that policy, which, you know, changed, of course. But anyway, she never doubted the profit and they just never did. So they were like, well, we know this is right. And then she, because people kept coming to her for her opinion, she said, well, I'm going to study and find out why he is right. And that was the example before me my whole life. So it was like no doubting. But it was Don't like, now, now let's be seekers of understanding. I love that. And she um, wrote a book. She ended up writing a book called, not a very catchy title, called Feminism Versus Familism, where she was supporting the family. And she, my mother, deep diver, like I said, she's a vertical thinker. I mean, a brilliant woman. Like when she learned something, I mean, she knew it inside and out. You should see the books that she read. She had notes in the margins and she would make summaries of every chapter and then a book summary and then a short book. So anyway, oh my this woman digested stuff and, and probably because she had a learning disability, but you know, she really turned that weakness into a strength and knew it better than anyone. Anyway, 
she wrote this book and it, again, you know, it's deep. So it wasn't like this easy read, you know, inspirational thing. It was just like this really, really, you know, data filled book that demonstrated how this would hurt families to pass that amendment. Wow. And that book was used in Oklahoma. Glenda Mattoon was the head of the Stop ERA movement there. She was a member of the church in our ward. And she had my mother's book and I didn't give it to her. It had been passed along and, and Desert Book wouldn't even publish it. So they self-published and they sent it out to people who heard about it and, and distributed a lot of free copies and whatever. And they, they copied charts from my mother's book to show to legislators. Here is the comparison of what this will do with, you know, without the passage and with the passage and what it will, how it will impact families. And, and then when we went to Illinois for my husband's first job in Chicago, Vivian Adams, who was one of the daughters of Bruce R. McConkie, was, in, was the head of that state's Stop ERA uh, movement. And she had a copy of my mother's book. And they, again, copied pages and gave them, anyway, and this, obviously, this word had gone out through the system of the Stop ERA movement to pass along this information that my mother had put together and documented so incredibly well because she knew the prophet was right. So let me, let me explain why through my own study and faith. I love that. That is the pattern. I mean, That's why are we doubting? Like really, again, we're going to reinvent the wheel. It's like, here's right. the guy who created everything, but we have a better idea. Like, no. like, are we not remembering Moses figuring this out? You know? Exactly. Well, and when people, you know, say things like, well, I just need to know for myself, I believe in personal revelation, but instead of the why let's figure out why he's right it's more of an if let's that's see right. if what he's saying is true let's and that on on shaky ground 100 percent. and heavenly father asks us so many times in the scriptures to ask and you shall find seek knock ask questions mm -hmm. but but then he also says doubt not don't it's doubt you believing that's right yeah. don't doubt you can ask questions without doubting and i think there's a difference between coming into a question with doubt, like, I don't really believe this and prove to me instead yeah, prove of- Prove it to me. Yes. That's a of, gratitude. And that's pride. That's where- I pride. love that. Yes. The if, not if, it's why. And I, and I love what you said about God is kind and, and, and when we obey him, it just will work out. It, it just will. Like our lives will be easier. We'll receive more light and knowledge. We will be more faith-filled. We'll be able to have the the clear minds to teach our children the truth from error everything will work out and oh my gosh i love talking to you today lily our confidence will wax strong yes our confidence will wax strong it you are i, I could talk to you for hours about this like i i love it so much in fact we may need to do a part two because i would love to talk about why you did get into social work and 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 how you kind of you know Follow your cook that on that one. Yep. It was revelation. It was revelation in high school that put me on the path of being a home time, a full time mother at home because I thought I would go right into a career. All my talents were academic, and all my professors were telling or teachers are telling me, you know, you should be a rocket scientist or ranger. Yes, I could have been, but I got a confirmation, and this is another story which I won't tell right now, but that I sh that at home mothering was the best thing I could do with my talents. And I wish every mother could know that because motherhood is really looked down upon these days. If you're a full-time mother and people are just kind of uninterested because they think your brain is turning into mush. And let me just tell you, I'm a smart person, but there wasn't a single day that I was home with my children that I didn't wish I were smarter. And what I learned in those years is incredible because I needed the light. I needed the power of heaven in my life to try to do the best job. I'm not saying I was a bird mother, nobody is, but I grew and learned in so many ways that when I went back to graduate school, I'm like, gosh, this is the easiest thing I've ever done. And, and I wouldn't have gone back without a revelation. Now, revelations come in different ways. Mine was a baseball bat revelation because I was so set on that path now of full-time mothering that I thought I'd go from mother to grandmother seamlessly, and it would be just marvelous. And I would continue to be magnified because God does not sacrifice his daughters for his other younger children. Like, why would he do that? He doesn't need to do that. He's brilliant. So he can set up a situation where our children are blessed and magnified because mothers choose to stay at home with them while they are young, especially. And then he magnifies us in the process. Like, it's never win-lose for God. It's always win-win if we do it his way. But sometimes women get caught in the, in the 
so much of the messaging of the world that tells them that this is a lesser path, that they're yep. not developing their talents, they're not being magnified, yep. they're, they're sacrificing it all in a way yep. that doesn't turn out to be good for them. Just It's just a sacrifice. Anyway, that's a, those are all lies. Those are all lies. And I know we have a lot of depressed and anxious mothers at home, bless their hearts, but they can reframe this and understand God's real plan for them and be magnified because there's, God can magnify us. He always magnifies us if we're, if we're tapping into that truth. So anyway, that's a whole different subject. I have such a lot to say to mother. Oh, I want, will you come on again and talk to us about that? I would love, because I feel so strongly about that too. And that I would love to just pick your brain on, on everything. I just dive deep into everything you just said about motherhood and the importance and significance. And like you said, that it's not a lesser it's not a lesser role. Why would he do that? Why no. would he do that? Why would he do that to his daughters? Uh, okay. We have to have you back, Lily, to talk okay. about that. Thank you so much for taking the time for coming on the podcast today. Please, every, you can check out your podcast. Please tell people where to go to listen to that and to get your book and to hear more from Lily Anderson. Well, thank you very much. It's, I, it's been a pleasure to be with you, Carmen. I'm really, really glad, glad that we met. And thanks for the invitation. I am uh, doing the podcast called Choosing Glory, which is the same title as my book because uh, I like that title and I use it. <laughs> I love it. And I really, if you know, people read the book, they actually understand why I chose the title. I also explained that at one episode of the podcast, but it really is because every day we are choosing which glory we want to inherit. Every day we are learning to live the law of either the celestial, terrestrial, or celestial kingdom. So choosing glory is our lives. We are choosing glory right now. Which glory do we want? How much glory do we want? We can have it all. The Lord will give all of it to us if we choose to receive in his plan, not our plan, his plan. It's, it's just the one plan and it's perfect. Yes. So that's the, name, that's the reason that the name is Choosing Glory. It's available on all the platforms. I think, you know, Apple, Spotify, Podcast Audible, things like that. So it's easy to find. And yes, I hope people will check it out. It's really been fun to be here with you. The book, Currently, we just reprinted it because for a long time it was out of print. So it's available right now for me. So people can uh, contact me. How do they find me? I actually have a website, which is ancient. It's being redone, but it's ancient right now, but it still works. And it's lilyanderson.com. And there's a contact page that goes to my inbox. So if anybody's interested in the book, we do have copies again, but it has been continually available in uh, Kindle form on Amazon. Perfect. Oh, everyone... Check that out, Lily. Thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I can't wait to talk with you more and, and listen to your podcast, Choosing Glory. How interesting and exciting. I'm going to check that out. And thank you for all the good you are doing. Well, thank you, Carmen. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. If you'd like to hear more from Carmen and get brand new full-length talks that you can't get anywhere else from some of your favorite speakers like John By the Way, Meg Johnson, and Hank Smith, you can exclusively inside Our Turtle House. Just go to OurTurtleHouse.com to get started. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here for another episode next week.